Father, we ask that as we come to your word, it is a, a great burden within us, Lord. We don't want to just cut and learn some things and leave. But Father, we truly want to have this time to meet with you. Lord, we want you to impact our hearts. We want to be challenged, Lord. We don't want to be a people that leave unchanged. We want the word of God to do what it was designed to do. Reveal who we are and establish for us a direction you would have for us. So Spirit, come, minister to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, my friends, uh, we are in the book of Second Chronicles. So go ahead and turn there to Second Chronicles. Uh, it's, it feels like forever since I've uh, stood with you. It's been almost a month since the last time uh, I had the opportunity to teach from First Chronicles. We finished First Chronicles together, and now we're moving into the next book. And some have asked, you know, First Chronicles, long book, why not, you know, go to the New Testament, start a different topic, and then come back to it? Well, one of the reasons why we, we chose not to do that is because in the original manuscripts, First and Second Chronicles didn't exist. There was just one book, one long book of 60-some chapters, and for our convenience, for our ease, it was divided up, it was split up into two books. In addition, there were no books, there were no chapters, there were no verses. All of those things were added later on just to make it a little more convenient and the ease of access for us as far as organization is concerned. So where we left off in First Chronicles continues right on into this next book uh, that we're going to be looking at, the book of Second Chronicles. A couple of reminders, particularly for those who weren't with us. The book of First and Second Chronicles, just call it Chronicles if you want, the book was written roughly the year 535 B.C. So you're talking about the events that it's speaking of are some 500 years earlier, and this particular book was written as the children of Israel were returning from the Babylonian captivity, which took place primarily during that century of the 500s B.C. So the people are returning to the land, and Ezra, the scribe who they believe, the lawyer who they believe wrote these words, is trying to reorient these exiles to the land. In 70 years, there's a good chance most of the people didn't, never lived in the land. And so questions like, where are we going to live? And where's my family? Where's my clan going to set itself up? Who's going to be in charge? Who are the priests that we're going to look to for leadership? All these sorts of things are answered for us in First Chronicles. Now, First Chronicles, and we'll, we'll get you involved here, primary focus of First Chronicles is who, would you say? Okay, some of you I heard. I, some are, I, that's what I heard, you know. Some of you said David, and you are correct. David would be the primary focus of the book. He's mentioned 153 times in the book. And beginning uh, in chapter 9, he's listed in every chapter to the end of the book. So 26 of the 29 chapters speak of David. He's clearly the focus of the book. And if you were with us, you remember that in the, the last chapter or so of the book, David dies, and he's passing the kingdom on to his son. And his son Solomon is going to become the next king of the nation of Israel. And Solomon becomes the primary focus of a portion of the book. Now, there's 36 chapters in the book of Second Chronicles. Chapters 1 through 9 are almost exclusively about Solomon, all about Solomon. All right, so that's a third of the book, roughly, or I don't know, do the math here. It's a large portion of the book is about him. And then the remaining 20 chapters or so, 18 chapters or so, they are looking at the other kings of the nation of Israel, and I'm going to introduce to you this idea that we haven't spoken of, and the nation of Judah. And it's going to trace all of these leaders of Israel, let's just say, uh, all the way up until the time of the Babylonian captivity. And remember, Ezra's writing in the years following the captivity as the people are returning to the land. So it's going to cover a period of about 400 
years in this particular book that we're looking at. Okay, Second Chronicles. Now, Solomon, I mentioned the name, he replaces David. When Solomon died, the kingdom was divided. There were some that want, wanted to follow Solomon's son, a guy by the name of Jeroboam, but there were others that revolted under the leadership of a fellow by the name of Rehoboam. And from the days of Solomon, roughly around the year 930 B.C., the nation divided into two nations. It was all within the promised land. Remember the rectangle that we've talked about? It's all within that promised land, but the nation divides. Ten of the tribes follow one of those men that I mentioned to you, and they become known as the northern tribes of Israel. And they take the name Israel, which doesn't seem fair, uh, because there already was an Israel, but they take the name Israel. Two of the tribes stay with the rightful king, a guy by the name of Jeroboam, and that's the southern portion of the rectangle, and they go by the name of Judah, which is the largest of the two tribes in that particular area. So from that point on, the nation is divided. Now, if you've read through your Bible, anybody do a chronological through the Bible? You kind of start with Genesis and you read through. If you've read through, nobody apparently, okay. If you've read through, uh, then you, you read First Kings, you read Second Kings, and then you come to First Chronicles, and you're like, I just read this. And you kind of look to see if you made a mistake, and you read Second Chronicles, and you're like, that's the same stuff that they just wrote about in First and Second Kings. Very similar material. First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, very similar material. But here is how you can kind of look at it and see the uniqueness between the two books. First Kings and Second Kings, they primarily write about the kings of the northern tribes, and they make mention of the kings from Judah. First and Second Chronicles primarily speak of the kings of Judah, and they make mention of the kings of Israel. Does that make sense? So this particular book, we're going to, as we go through Second Chronicles, we will look at every single one of the kings of the nation of Judah and passing reference to those kings that are from the nation of Israel. I suspect from time to time we'll also jump back into First and Second Kings uh, just to make some connections there for us. So Second Chronicles, why don't we start with verse 1. It says, Now Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1, Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him, and he made him exceedingly great. Now, first thing you need to do, forget everything I just said about a divided kingdom, because it's going back before that. The time of verse 1 is 970 B.C. Solomon will rule for about 40 years, so he'll die around 930 B.C., and that's when the division will take place. But here we are, 970 B.C., and verse 1 says that Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom. The word for established that we have here is a word which means to make firm not to be moved it's at this point now that solomon is going to be the rightful king now that wasn't like sort of like yeah of course he's a son david had lots and lots of sons and david probably would have picked somebody else other than solomon because there were many other sons that were more qualified but god had picked solomon communicated that to david and so david said look Solomon is the one, and we're going to support him. We know from the scripture that Solomon was a young man. David referred to him as young and inexperienced, that he was probably only 20 years of age. But nonetheless, this was the one that God had selected. And his kingdom now is established. It's made firm. And all of the threats that initially you see in the book of 1 Kings, all of those threats against his kingdom from uh, inside other brothers and rival nations, all of that passes on, and Solomon now is ready to lead the nation. And he's going to lead Israel, as we keep reading, you read history and so on, he's going to lead Israel to a place 
that it had never been before and a place it would never go to again. The zenith of its power as it expanded out to the true borders that are closest to the, two, the true borders that were originally made to Abraham, those promises and so on. That was during the days of King Solomon. So he's firmly established. And as you move on to verse 2, it says that Solomon spoke to all of Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in Israel, the heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly went uh, with him. They went to the high place that was at Gibeon. For the tent of meeting of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place that David had prepared for it. For he pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, had made was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly resorted to it. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and he offered a thousand burnt offerings upon it. So Solomon gathers all the leaders, and he takes them out to a city that is called Gibeon. All the leaders, the military leaders, the religious leaders, the clan leaders, the judges, and so on, these are people that we read about in the closing chapters of First Chronicles. All right? And I like to kind of make these things, because what happens to me is I, I learn it, and I know it, and then I kind of drift away three, four weeks, and I don't remember it anymore. So I'm going back, and I'm reminding you, those chapters where you're like, why do we got to read all these names? Well, we read all those names because that's who we're referring to here. He takes all of those clan leaders and he brings them to the city of Gibeon because, as it says in verse 3, they went there because the tent of meeting, which the Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness, that was there. Now, again, if you're like me, you mix things up in your study of the Scripture. And so we all know Gibeon. I just said it to you, Gibeon. Some of us might think, well, isn't that Gideon? that judge that we read about, that we know about. And a lot of the words sound alike, and so we forget who we're talking about here. So don't mix up Gibeon with Gideon. Gideon, with a D, was one of the judges of the nation of Israel. We read about him in the book of Judges, specifically in chapters 7 7 and 8. You may recall that Gideon is the one where led a group of 32,000 men. They were about to encounter the enemy, and God said, hold on one second, we need to do some things with your army. You have too many men. And I can only imagine Gideon's like, we need too many men. How can you have too many men to go fight a battle? I want more men. And he said, no, you have too many men. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to winnow it down. And he does. Gideon winnows it all the way down to 300 men. And God says, now you're ready. Go. And they go, and God gives a great victory. That's Gideon with a D. Okay, but we're talking about a city, the city of Gibeon with a B. This city, you can see the map here. It's about eight miles to the north and to the west of Jerusalem. It's right near Jerusalem. Uh, And it's in the city of Gibeon that the tent of meeting is residing. Now, if you read the King James Version, which I know a number of you do, if you read that, you'll notice there it doesn't say tent of meeting, but it says the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, a tabernacle is a tent. That's where in modern translations they get the word tent. And the word that is used for congregation is the appointed place for meeting. And so in our modern translations, we have the tent of meeting. The word, the phrase, tabernacle, uh, what was it, tabernacle of the congregation, or the phrase, the tent of meeting, it appears 131 times between the book of Exodus and where we are here in the book of Second Chronicles. So a lot is spoken of about this particular tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was initially erected by Moses, and it was going to be the place, remember, when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, They wandered around for a period of 40 years or about 40 years or so, and the people lived in tent cities. 
the tent of meeting was set up just outside of those ten cities. So all the people gathered in this place, and just outside of that was the tent of meeting. And it was at the tent of meeting, according to Exodus chapter 33, that Moses would go and he would sit before the Lord. And when Moses would come out of that place, Joshua, his assistant, would go, and they would sit and they would commune with the Lord and they would hear from the Lord. So it was, if you will, the place of the Lord's presence where he would speak to them. Now, as you continue to follow through this idea of the tent of meeting, through the book of Leviticus and into Numbers and Joshua and Judges and so on, it seems that this tent of meeting, which predated the tabernacle, would eventually become synonymous with the tabernacle, specifically the Holy of Holies, as far as the presence of God is concerned. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us why this tent of meeting is at Gibeon, just that it is. And the whole tabernacle is there at Gibeon. When we looked at 1 Chronicles chapter 13, 14, and 15, what we saw was that David had went, taken the Ark of the Covenant, and brought that back to Jerusalem. Why he didn't take the rest of the tabernacle and the other furniture, we don't necessarily know. But the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem, and the tabernacle, the rest of it, and the priest and all these other things, they're still there in this little town of Gibeon. And so 1 Chronicles 21 says, For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering, they were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. Now the tabernacle, another name for it, it's kind of a precursor, a temporary temple. The tabernacle or the temple, they consisted of just a few items. It was relatively small, and they consisted of just a few items of furniture. Not couches and chairs and tables and stuff like that, but the items that they had were things like the bronze altar or the table of showbread. So I think we have a picture here. This is a picture of the tabernacle. It's a temporary structure. When God said it was time to move, they would go and they would move. This tabernacle was eventually replaced by the temple. Same exact setup and format. And there were six simple pieces of furniture. And I'd encourage you to do a study of these six pieces of furniture. And we're going to be talking about them as we continue to move through and Solomon builds the temple. But each one of these, I would suggest to you, has its fulfillment or it foreshadows a New Testament truth. So it's an exciting study and I'd encourage you to look into it. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit about it. Six items of furniture. They are, and I think uh, the arrows are going to point. The Ark of the Covenant which is in the Holy of Holies. Now, at where we're looking in the passage, it's not there. It was moved to Jerusalem. Also, the table of showbread, the bronze altar, which was also called the altar of burnt offerings, something called the altar of incense for the incense offerings, the golden lampstand, sort of the, um, what's that thing for uh, Hanukkah? The, the candle thing. Thank you. I knew that. I was just wondering if you did. It sort of looks like one of those. It's pretty exciting. And then finally, the laver. Now, the laver was a basin where the priests would go and ceremonially wash themselves in preparation for each of these sacrifices. And that's it. That's the furniture of the temple. Very, very simple. Again, as I said, in First Chronicles 15, we read that David moved the ark. So that's not at this particular tabernacle. Looking at verse 5, it speaks of the bronze altar. And it speaks of this fellow by the name of Bezalel. Now, what I appreciate so much about this, we looked at him before. What I appreciate, appreciate about Bezalel is he's not a teacher. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't any of these sorts of things, a Bible um, preacher, anything like that. He was a craftsman. He was gifted with his hands to create items. And God used him powerfully. As he took the gift that he had and he turned that back to God, God used that very powerfully. And here his name is mentioned. 
that he was the one that constructed or built this bronze altar. Again, look at verse 5 where it speaks of that. And it's upon that altar, it's on that altar, that Solomon brings or he presents to the priest to bring a thousand of these burnt offerings. Let's talk a little bit about this bronze altar. The bronze altar, as you look at the tabernacle, was the very first item that the worshiper and the priest would encounter when they came into the tabernacle. So the, the tabernacle structure, it had sort of like a fencing all the way around it, and there was one way in to this tabernacle structure. And as they would come in, they would come into this bronze altar. The bronze altar, it says in uh, one of the places that we're going to read, Exodus chapter 27, it says that it, the altar shall be square, that its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So if it's three cubits, it's about four and a half feet high. It's about seven and a half feet wide as a square. So it's a large structure. It's not some small little structure. It's a large structure, and it's completely covered with bronze, it tells us. Also, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 29, it says that Moses set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and there they offered the burnt offering. It's significant that this is the very first thing that you encounter. One of the things in the Scripture, you have to be careful, but there, there's an aspect of the Scripture where there's typology. There are certain types. Things mean certain things. Now, the reason I say you have to be careful with that is because then you can get the Bible to say anything you want. But one of the things that is interesting about this idea of bronze in the Scripture is if you were to do a study of the word bronze, or King James uses the word brazen, if you were to do a study on that, what you would discover is every time that bronze appears, it's associated in one way or another with judgment. And so the bronze idea of the bronze altar is that this altar is going to be a place where something is going to be judged. It's also interesting that on this particular altar that an animal would be offered. You would bring your lamb, whatever it is, you'd bring your animal and you would offer it there. And in this instance, the animal would be completely consumed by the fire. So another name for this altar is the altar uh, of the, the burnt, altar of burnt offering. Some of the other offerings that are going to take place a little bit further in the tabernacle, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the trespass offering, they're not complete in total. They're sort of, uh, in some cases, you would bring it uh, and the priest would be able to shove his kind of fork into this, this bowl, boiling water or so, and if he could take something out, the priest got to keep what he took out. That was sort of his provision. God provided for him food that they would go and that they would cook. But this particular offering was complete and total. And this offering, the bronze offering, it was an offering that was to be made for the worshiper's sin or the worshiper's family's sin. Very important you hear sin as opposed to sins. The trespass offering dealt with my trespasses against others. The guilt offering, my specific things, I was mean to them, I cut them off in line, whatever it may be. The uh, guilt offering dealt with my sins against God. Lord, I can't believe I did that, I'm sorry, and so on. But this offering doesn't deal with specific sins, it deals with sin. It deals with the fact that I am who I am, completely separate from God. It deals with the fact that the state of man's sinfulness, or to use a term that we don't use a lot, but it deals with my depravity. It's an acknowledgement that when you come into the tabernacle, you are essentially saying, I have no right to be in this place. I am so far from you, 
It's not like I look at my life, God, and there's a couple of things I can clean up and I'll be okay uh, as things go on. It's a, it's a bold statement of complete and total dependence on God. God, I am a sinner. And if I am ever going to progress all the way to the back of this tabernacle where there is the Holy of Holy and the presence of God, then I've got to make my way through this first. A complete and total offering. Leviticus chapter 1 also tells us that the offerer, the worshiper, would come and he would present the animal and the priest would essentially say, you ready? And he would say, yes, I am. He, said, he would say, okay, put your hand upon the animal's head. And you're like, you know what? I prefer not to. I shared with you guys when we were in Africa they, uh, as a missionary team, they bought us a goat as a gift. Uh, and they were going to sac- offer the goat, not offer, I shouldn't say, they were going to kill the goat so we could eat it. And we were delighted. And they were like, would you like to come and see us kill the goat? And I was like, no, nah, not really, but yeah, I do want to see this because I never see stuff like this in the United States. And so, yeah, so we all got up. Adam was with me and some others. We all got up at 6 a.m. or something that day because it would take them all day to prepare the, the offering. And there you watch them kill this goat. And you look at that and you're like, oh, it's horrible. Why did I even get up for this? As the thing writhes in pain and all that sort of stuff. And so I imagine many people would come to this and say, I don't want to touch it. You know, just kind of do it and tell me when it's over. And the priest said, no, we're not going to do it and tell you when it's over. Put your hand on the head of this animal. And until you're willing to do that, we're not moving forward here. Because as you put your hand on the head of that animal, you are identifying with the animal. And essentially, as that animal writhes in its pain and all this sort of stuff, and eventually it just gives up and it dies, you are making a statement, and you are certainly acknowledging, man, my sin, the sin of my family that I'm coming and representing, it cost this animal its life. Sin is very, very serious. And this idea of atonement or at one with God, being able to have peace with God, being able to progress all the way to the back of this tabernacle where I can get into the presence of God and head toward that holy of holies, being able to do that requires a life to be slain as my substitute. It's the bronze altar. Now, as I said, every aspect of the temple or the tabernacle, I think, foreshadows a truth of the New Testament. And I think especially this concept of the placement of the bronze altar. Because the first thing that all worshipers, all people that are bringing an offering must deal with is the judgment that is required for their sin. And a New Testament truth, I guess, that we might say for you and I is when we come into, we want to come into a relationship with God, we don't come to a bronze altar, but we come to a cross. Because at the cross, there was a complete and total offering that God accepted on my behalf and on your behalf so that I might be able to progress forward deeper into the presence of God. And it's only with the complete and total offering Only when that takes place that we could ever proceed toward the Holy of Holies. Our sin had to be, again, no S, our sin had to be judged upon the cross. It's the only point of entry for anyone to experience peace and the presence of God. And so here Solomon comes to this bronze altar and he offers through the priest a thousand of these... uh, these animals here. He offers a thousand of them. And that's not just for him. That's for his nation, essentially. You can imagine how long that must have taken. There at Gibeon, that's an all-day worship affair. And I suspect following a long day of service and worship, Solomon finally makes his way back to his tent or his sleeping quarters. And there, as he's either lying on his bed and dozes off to sleep, or as he's just sort of lying there and you know looking up at the top of the tent or whatever it may be, 
I think that's when verse 7 occurs. Notice what it says. It says, now in that night, God appeared to Solomon and he said to him, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, you have shown great and steadfast love to David my father, and you have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled. For you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and to come in before this people. For who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? And God answered Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or for the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked long life for yourself, but you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people, over whom I have made you king, then wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches and possessions and honor, and such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned there over Israel. God says to him, ask what I shall give you. Could you imagine? If God said to you, you could have whatever you want, go ahead and just ask. I'll give you whatever it is that you want. How would you respond? Would you respond, I'd, I want lots of money? Because then I have to you know, do the whole work thing, and I don't have to do this and that, I don't have to worry about this and that. Lots of money, God. Give me lots of money, and I'll be satisfied. Maybe you would ask for a great family, healthy, everything going well, kids are well-behaved, going to good schools, all that sort of stuff. Maybe you would ask for a big house. I just had that big, I, you know what I would ask for? I'd ask for a nice big beach house. That would be really nice. Right overlooking the ocean, high enough up so it's safe from hurricanes and stuff like that. What would come to mind, though, if God gave you a blank check and said you could have whatever you want? What would you ask for? You know, the answer to that question is significant because I believe it reveals what's in our heart. The answer to that question, and most of us would, you know, we would probably think of something nice you know, or something. But deep down, what truly would you want if you had that blank check? I think it reveals to us really what we are seeking after, what we're running after. Solomon's response to God reveals what's going on in his heart. So Solomon asks, he says, the King James I love, he says, Lord, give me an understanding heart to govern this thy good people. You look at verse 10 in, in ESV, it says, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and to come in before this people for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? You see, when Solomon said, give me an understanding heart to govern this thy good people, I think a lot of things are revealed about, a lot of things are revealed about him. Number one, I think that, that he is clearly saying, Lord, I am completely inadequate for this job that you've asked of me. So in a sense, he's saying, God, I'm not up to the task. In addition, I think when he says, to govern this thy good people, I think we're seeing his desire is to see that the people of God are cared for well. It's as if he is saying something like, you know what, I could fail and I could be a bad king and I could live with that. I'll go down in history and I'm not a good king. But what would happen to this people if I fail? You see, his primary concern is the people of God. I'm inadequate, I can't do it. Lord, these people, they, they deserve a better king than I am. And then I think ultimately there's a sense of Solomon's desperate dependence on God. God, I need you. Please, help me. I think of Moses' words when God asked Moses to go before Pharaoh, and he, and he says, God, just pick somebody else. 
I don't think that's because Moses was a jerk and didn't feel like doing it. I just think he didn't feel he could do it. And so he says, pick somebody else. And here, uh, in a sense, Solomon is saying, I can't do it. I need you, God. These people need you. And so he says, give me an understanding heart to govern this thy good people. Notice verse 11, God was delighted to answer that prayer. He says, God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, you've not asked for possessions or wealth or honor or the life of those who hate you or even long life for yourself, but you've asked for wisdom and knowledge that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king, then wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I'll also give you riches and possessions, honor, such as none of the kings who were before you and none after you shall ever have. You can hear, you can, you can hear the tone of God's response, how excited he is. It's as if God is saying, that's a fantastic answer. You know, and I'm going to go out of my way and I'm going to bless you even more than you could possibly imagine here. We consider Solomon's response. God gave him a blank check. And I can't help but think of the New Testament. In Jesus, or in Matthew, I should say, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, he said, he encourages you and I. The Sermon on the Mount was not some sermon to a group of people that lived back then. It's a sermon to you and I. And on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. That's what Solomon did. He sought first the kingdom of God, the nation of Israel, that the people would thrive and that they would do well, and he would have wisdom to govern them and to rule them well. And God responded and he added all that other stuff unto Solomon. God knows what you and I need. He knows our needs. And he has promised that he would provide for those needs. So whether those needs be material or whether they be emotional or whether they be physical, he knows what you need. And he promises that he will provide for those things. I think though what unfortunately tends to happen is the tendency of us is to get our eyes on the needs my emotional needs, my physical needs, my monetary needs. We get our eyes on those needs and we don't have time. I don't have time to seek the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, I got needs that have to be met. And God is saying, no, I want you to, Jesus said, I want you to look at this completely different. I want you to seek first me and I'll take care of all those other things. Are you willing to do that? Now, yeah, we nod our heads. Yes, I got that. But that's a struggle. That is a hard thing for us to do. It is a, it is a pattern of thinking that has to be learned. It is something that has to become rote memory within us. I seek first the kingdom of God, and I leave these things to him. That doesn't mean you don't get a job. It doesn't mean you don't put your kid in school or whatever. whatever. Obviously, you do those things, but we seek first the kingdom of God. And he will provide, as it says, each of those needs. You know, a little bit later on in the book of Second Chronicles, it says in verse chapter 16, it says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to give strong support to those whose heart is perfect toward him. Seek first the kingdom of God. Have a heart that is perfect toward God. In other words, you could say this. You could say that the Lord looks for men and women and young people that he can entrust his blessing to. Again, to say that the Lord looks for men, he looks for women, he looks for young people that he can entrust his blessing to. Solomon was seeking first God's kingdom at this point in his life. And that allowed God to entrust him, in this case with riches and possessions and honor, such as none had before. So the question, because we don't want to just learn about somebody else's life, we want to apply it to our life, is how are you doing with that? How are you doing with seeking first the kingdom of God in your life? And you may hear that, and you might think, I'm not doing very good with that. 
I've never really done very good with that. I'm a Christian. I gave my life to Jesus. I acknowledged my need for a Savior, and, and I became a follower of His. So I'm a Christian. But as far as seeking first the kingdom of God, you know, I kind of seek fifth, the kingdom of God. You know, there's a lot of other things that kind of have it. And so you might hear that question, and you might say, I'm not doing really well with that. Some of you might hear it, and you might say, I used to do really well with that. But, you know, that was when I was like in youth group and I was a kid and there's nothing really to worry about. But now I got, you know, all sorts of pressures and things like this and that have come my way. So I haven't been doing very well with that. So some of you may hear that question and say, oh, crumb, why'd I come today? You know what I mean? Now I'm like on the spot here. Well, here's what I would suggest to you this. If you hear that and you think, you know what? I've wasted five, ten years of my Christian walk, 20, 25 years of my Christian walk. It's just not something I did. I wish I did. I look at other people that seem to seek first the kingdom of God, and they seem to be doing great in their walk, and I, I would love to have a walk like them, but that's just not me. I never did it, and I, I guess I can't do it now. Here's the truth that I would like to convey to you, that the lesson that we learn from Scripture is that it is never too late to start. And so if you've got an area of your life that is sin, and you think that's got a hold of my life, and it just defines who I am, the reality of the Scripture it teaches is, no, that doesn't have to define who you are from this point on. It may have defined who you are. You may have been that person, but from this day on, you can move forward in a new truth. And similarly, as it pertains to seeking first the kingdom of God, you can determine today that as far as tomorrow is concerned, you are going to commit yourself to seeking first the kingdom of God in all things that you do. Let me give you just a simple, practical example. Because what does that mean, Greg? Seek first the kingdom. I don't know what that means. Not, don't curse at people? Okay, I won't do that. You know, did I accomplish what I was supposed to do? So let me just give you a very practical thing that pertains to what you do when you wake up in the morning. Oh, man. That's holy. That's sacred. Don't touch my morning, um, Greg, here. Here's what I would suggest to you. Make a purpose in your heart tomorrow and then the next day and the day following that that you are going to begin every day with time in the Word and in prayer. Seek first the kingdom of God in that very practical, simple way. Ah, uh, you don't understand. I'm tired. You don't think any, all the rest of us that get up at that time are not tired as well? We're tired. Some of us, we choose to go to bed a little bit earlier because we know we can't get up. But we've purposed that we're going to seek first the kingdom of God. That was one of the most, I said it before, it was one of the most important lessons I learned in college. Quite honestly, college did not prepare me to be a school teacher. It prepared me to be a follower of Christ. Uh, I learned some things about teaching and things like that, and they were kind of helpful, I think. Um, but I really learned how to teach as a school teacher when I was actually doing it and getting paid for it and failing. Right, Dan? Dan was my teacher. I failed a little bit in the early years, but I eventually figured it out. Um, but what I really learned in college that impacted me more than anything was to take that time and to seek the Lord on a daily basis, to work a personal, quiet time into my life. Seek first the kingdom of God with that simple thing and see if it doesn't pay dividends. See if it doesn't affect the way that you live your life uh, and the way you go through your particular life on that day, uh, and so on. And, and you can use a lot of different examples. That's just one that I wanted to throw to you there. Now, I want to end with this. What a great answer that he gives. And you might look at that and you're like, well, if he wasn't smart yet, wise yet, how did he know to give such a wise answer? You know, that doesn't make any sense here. Like, where did the wisdom come from to ask for wisdom? And I think the wisdom came from First Chronicles chapter 22. Eight, ten chapters earlier, David now is told that Solomon is going to be the next king, and he encounters Solomon, and he 
he pronounces a blessing over Solomon. He, he prays for Solomon. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, he says, May the Lord give you discretion and understanding. He says, May the Lord give you wisdom. Now here's the thing. This is now a number of years later. David is not even alive anymore, but God is answering the prayer that David prayed over his son many, many years earlier. And I'd encourage you, I think this is a testimony for you and I to continue in prayer, believing for our children, believing for our unbelieving friends, believing for our co-workers, believing for our community, believing for our nation. We pray and we continue to pray, knowing that God is faithful to hear those prayers and to answer those prayers. It may not be in our lifetime, but who cares? If I really want God to do a work in your life, it doesn't matter if I get to see it or not. God, just do the work. That's what I'm looking for. So this is what it says in 1 John chapter 5. It says, now this is the confidence that we have found in him. If we ask anything according to his name, to his will, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. Do you think it's in the will of God that your loved ones come to know the mercy of Christ? Sure it is. Do you think it's in the will of God that the effects of sin that are ravaging our community and our nation that they sort of be eradicated one person at a time as people come into a relationship with the Son and they begin to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to Him? Absolutely. It's the Lord's desire. It's according to His will. So we know that He hears us. So here's my advice. My advice is that you and I, we be a people as individuals, as families, as churches, as a church, I should say, that we be a people that are bold in our prayers. Now don't misunderstand me because a lot of people hear that and they mean that, that means I can go in and I can tell God what I'm thinking. God, you're, I, this is what I want. I want it done by tomorrow. You know, this sort of thing. And be all arrogant with God. That's not what we're saying. We're not talking about dictating to God what he's going to do and when he's going to do it. But we're talking about coming to God emboldened with a sense of believing. God, I'm coming and I'm going to present this prayer request to you because I'm absolutely confident it's according to your will and that the one that I am petitioning you, that you are able to accomplish this particular thing. So we come believing, we come boldly before God that he's able to accomplish our petition. And so, number one, I would ask or encourage you, commit yourself to be bold in your prayers. If there's an aspect of your life that, you know, you've just been dragging along, that you want God to do a work and change, bring that to him in prayer. Have other people pray, God, this is an area that needs to be changed. I'm going to submit it to you. Would you do that work? If there's people in your family that you love that don't know him, bring them to the Lord in prayer. And then the second aspect of things is make a determination that tomorrow, or even this afternoon, but let's just start with tomorrow fresh, that tomorrow I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God in all things. Just do it for the day. Seek first the kingdom of God in all things. Get up, read your word. Choose how you're going to respond to people. You know what? I, I really want, I want to tell them what I'm thinking. But Lord, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to seek you first. And I'm going to let you kind of write these circumstances Determine to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and see if your day isn't blessed and see in the long run if your life isn't blessed. Solomon goes before the Lord. He prays for wisdom. God gives him that wisdom. We'll see that uh, throughout these next 10 chapters. Uh, so we begin our study of Second Chronicles. Let's go before the Lord. Father, we thank you for uh, the example of Solomon. I thank you for even to go back further, the example of David. Lord, I know many of us, we, we pray a lot and we wonder if there's any reason to do so. 
we don't see an answer, we don't see a response, and we feel maybe like we're just wasting our time. But Lord, I ask that uh, using the example of David, that you would just impress upon our hearts the importance of persevering and laboring in our prayers, coming before you, letting our requests be made known, being confident, Lord, that you hear us and that you answer. And Lord, truly being bold and coming before you and asking for those things that the deepest place of our heart desires to see, like, like David prayed for his son, wanting him to do well and to lead the people well. So Father, I, I know that uh, there is a wrestling that can take place within our hearts now. Lord, you could put your thumb, so to speak, Lord, on an area of our heart Lord, where we know that we're not seeking you first in that particular area. It hasn't truly been given over to the Lordship of Christ. And Lord, there's a part of us that is completely convinced, you know what, i got to get right in that area. And Lord, I know that there are conflicting thoughts that race into our heart and in our mind that seem to convince us, you know what, you're fine. You're all right where you're at, but Lord, we know the truth. You desire such good things uh, to be done within us. So Lord, I ask for us as a body of believers, Lord, would you fill us this day with the courage to choose wisely the direction of our lives from this day forward? And Lord, would you reveal to us those areas of our lives where we do need to seek you first? And Father, would you pour out your blessing upon us as a group of believers, or that we would experience your presence, your hand upon our lives in a way that we have never experienced previously. How great that would be. And so we ask that in your name. Amen.